You are now listening to the Charity Church Podcast. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter one this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter one is where we're gonna be this morning. Uh, This morning, I wanna begin with a question and not one that I'm asking you necessarily, but one that you have asked yourself since the beginning of your consciousness. Here's the question. What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? In 2005, um, a man named Steve Croft sat down in a 60 Minutes interview on ESPN with the famed athlete Tom Brady. Tom Brady, on the height of his career in 2005, they're having a conversation. Here's what Tom Brady says. There's gotta be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27, and what else is there for me? Croft asks Tom the question, what's the answer, Tom? And Tom responds, I wish I knew, I wish I knew. You see, everyone seems to be asking the same question, where can meaning be found in this life? And I wanna expose to you this morning that the angst of the world in all its array shows us that life isn't meaningless, rather, its meaning has been lost. Life is not meaningless. Rather, its meaning has been lost. And to do this this morning, I wanna wring out the teachings of a man, a king, a preacher named Solomon, who sought meaning and satisfaction in every imaginable source under the sun, and yet none could be found for him. Let's pray. Father, we give this morning to you. Father, we invite you into our time and our space and God, I ask that you would remove the veil from our eyes. God, give us the clarity in our heart from your spirit to see as what you want us to see and hear those things that you want us to hear. God, I pray for people who are coming into this room weary and tired of the world's empty treasures and pleasures. And God, would you show us that only through you today, Lord, would we be pleasured. God, in, in you is our greatest treasure. And God, I pray that as we go throughout this time this morning that your word would speak to us, that you would bring to life the things in our hearts that we know are true and yet we've lost in translation. Father, help to use me as a vessel. We pray all this in your name. Amen and amen. I've titled the message this morning, Don't Waste Your Life. Don't waste your life. I've got 30 minutes with you. I'm going to tell you right off the the bat, I have no jokes in this entire message and I have 30 minutes and I'm going to spend every single one of them being as honest and as bold and as passionate with you as I can be. So if you pay attention this morning, I do believe that you won't waste your life. That's the title of the message this morning, Don't Waste Your Life. And to help us not waste our life, our guide this morning is none other than Solomon, the preacher king of Israel. Now, if you don't know much about Solomon, Solomon was one of the sons of David, the great king after God's heart. And Solomon was more wealthy, pleasured, and wise. And he was prosperous more than anyone before him or anyone after him. About Solomon's wealth, it says this in 1 Kings 10. It says, now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, or I put here about 25 tons. Now, gold in this time was worth about $2,000 an ounce. So do the math, that's about $32,000 a pound. So in one year, Solomon got $1.6 billion as his allowance. One year but we have to account for inflation. So you take 1.6 and you multiply it by 3.6% for every year. And Solomon comes out with a staggering $14 trillion a year for King Solomon. Some of you think you're wealthy, but that's nothing compared to Solomon's wealth. Solomon could have paid off our country's debt in one check and had money to go on vacation. 
But it wasn't just wealth, it was pleasure as well. This is what it says about Solomon in 1 Kings 11. It says that Solomon had 700 wives. Now, some of you husbands in the room, I just want you to think about that for a minute, okay? We do well enough with one wife. Hopefully you just have one wife. Um, Solomon had 700 who were princesses, high maintenance, and 300 concubines. Now to most of the world, pleasure and wealth are the pinnacle of existence. You're prosperous and you're pleasured, brother, sister, you've made it. But this wasn't it for Solomon. Solomon was also the wisest man to ever live. Here's what it says about Solomon's wisdom. It says, Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. You see, Solomon was the smartest, most knowledgeable, wise man to ever walk the face of the earth other than our Lord Jesus. Solomon had it all. He has prosperity in the bag, pleasure on lock, and materials like none of us could even imagine. I mean, Solomon has the dream life that all of us aspire and want, and yet here is how he introduces his book to us this morning. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter one, verses one through two. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Solomon is not talking about your bathroom sink. Solomon is talking about the Hebrew word habel, And habel translates to be a vapor or a smoke or the wind. You see, Solomon is gonna use the word habel 38 times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes to show us that life is like grabbing at a cold breath of air on a cold winter morning to grab it in our fist, pull it tightly to our face and unlock our fist to see nothing there. Solomon says, our life is like the wind. You don't know its past, you can't catch it, you can't determine it, and you can't know its future. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon will set up his watchtower under the worldview of secularism and conclude that nothing in this life can give us satisfaction and meaning, even though we think it can. Solomon draws our attention to the ever-looming reality that if we can't find meaning under the sun, then we must look for it beyond the sun. And throughout chapter one, Solomon will display Habel through life's fleeting mirage. In verse four, in chapter one, he says, a generation comes and a generation goes. Solomon says, from dust we came and to dust we will return. D.A. Digarolamo says it this way, the hardest truth we face is the existential crisis of our own lives. Solomon echoes what his father David says in the Psalms. David writes this in Psalm 103, 15. He says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. Solomon holds up a mirror in verses five to seven of human experience. And he says that when you die, when your life ends and when you pass on, the universe and nature don't pause at your departure. The sun rises and sets, the tide comes in and it leaves. Solomon says, go climb a mountain and see if it cares. Go cast a stone into the sea and see if the tide stops for you, right? Solomon draws our attention that life is on a pace that does not stop when we do. Recently, I started working out about eight months ago and I work out down here at the gym that some of the pastors work out. It's a workout anytime. And one of the things that I like to do at the gym is I'll get on the treadmill and I'll walk and no matter how hard I'm running, my gut's out. And no matter how high my heart rate tells me it is, I'm still in the same spot as when I started. Solomon says, life is like that treadmill. It's the illusion that you are going somewhere when in actuality, you haven't gone anywhere. 
Life is on a cyclical rotation going nowhere. And Solomon highlights this at the ever-looming reality of his own death. Here's what Johnny Artavanis says. He says, coffins preach the loudest sermons. Meaning death in all of life's uncertainties is a certain. It is inescapable and it is a great teacher. And when you die, what will people say about your life? Our funerals, our coffins preach the loudest sermons. Now you may ask yourself this morning, Grant, why are you so depressing? Why is, why is this information pertinent to me? Here's why. God has given mankind the grievous task of wrestling with the question, where can meaning be found in this life? And here's why, so that we don't waste ours. You see, Solomon has the craving for meaning just like you and I do. And he begs the question as his life comes to a close, where can meaning be found? Solomon is going to pursue in the book of Ecclesiastes three different ways of pursuing meaning. And those are what I wanna speak to you about the rest of our time together this morning. If you're in your Bibles, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse 12. Here's what it says. I, the preacher king, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I have applied my heart. Some of your translations might say I've given my heart. I've applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is a vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to wisdom and to no madness and folly. And I have perceived that this is also but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Solomon's gonna pursue three meaningless pursuits this morning in the text. And here's the first one, if you're taking notes, intellectualism. Solomon pursues the meaningless pursuit of intellectualism, knowledge, wisdom, understanding. And in verse 13, he says that he gave his heart towards wisdom. Do you see Solomon wasn't just exploring a few good novels. No, Solomon made his life's goal and ambition to know everything. He gave his heart to wisdom. And his conclusion is not that he learned a lot and gained a lot. No, his conclusion is that it's an unhappy business. You see, Solomon recognized that the more he comes to know, the more there is to know. And just as Adam and Eve sinned after the forbidden knowledge in the Garden of Eden, the toil after knowledge still plagues the sons of men today. In Solomon's pursuit of wisdom and knowledge, what he's going to realize is that it cannot answer the craving in our hearts for meaning. Now, you might ask the question, why? Why, Grant? We live in a world in a time where we have never had this much access to information and knowledge and wisdom. We have the internet and all these books. Why can't the search for meaning be found in them? Because Sinclair Ferguson says that information in the mind cannot of itself satisfy the needs of the heart, nor can it tame the unruliness of the soul. You see, intellectualism may fill our minds, but it cannot satisfy our hearts. Johnny Artavanis says it this way, education cannot untangle the web that is the human heart and it cannot provide for what is lacking in the soul. And that is why Solomon comes to his own conclusion in verse 18 and he says, he who increases in knowledge also increases in sorrow. 
Solomon says, the more I came to know, the more sorrow that I had. And we know in this world today that usually those who know the most are tortured by what it is that they know. Solomon says, it's a vexation. It did me more harm than it did good. So Solomon's come this morning to the conclusion that intellectualism cannot satisfy the desire for meaning in the heart. And so he turns to unrestricted debauchery and pleasure. Here's what our second meaningless pursuit is this morning, hedonism. Solomon's second meaningless pursuit this morning, if you're taking notes, is hedonism. Now, hedonism just means pleasure. You don't know what hedonism means? It means pleasure. Here's what Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 3 says. Solomon said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched in my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of his life. You see, when intellectualism doesn't satisfy Solomon, he turns to pleasure. He turns to pleasure. Now, some of you have already walked through your party days, all right? Maybe some of you guys in college, you're party animals or whatever, like you, you, you partied with your homies, right? Like Solomon is a party fiend, a fiend. If, if, if you look at the dictionary for, for partying, Solomon is there. Solomon partied like no other. First Kings uh, 4, 22 and 23 tells us about one of these, one of the rations for a party like this. Let's read together. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores uh, of fine flour and 60 cores of mill, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowls. You see, this wasn't some little garden party. This was not an apartment party. This wasn't a house party. No, people came from countries away bearing all sorts of great gifts. And Solomon's party as he prepared was great and grandiose and magnificent. And estimates say that one party and one day's rations could feed about 20,000 people. And you had to feed that many people when Solomon has 700 wives, 300 concubines, and they're all princesses, lords, and ladies from all over would come and see these parties. And this was not to satisfy Solomon's own appetite for partying, but to fill the void of meaning in his heart to make others pleased. And it wasn't just food, it was women too. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, like I just mentioned. As I was researching for this, I came across this man um, named Zion Chana, okay? Here's Zion. He's a... Uh, wearing like a cool explorer hat up here. But Zion Chana was born in India. And before his death at 76, Zion Chana took on 39 wives. And his house had over 180 people in it. Just one guy, patriarch, right? So he marries, which we can look and we can say, he married about two women every other year. Listen, Solomon married about two women a week. And they were princesses. This is pleasure, intimacy, and fornication on another level, and yet Solomon's heart is not satisfied. So he turns to laughter. Now, laughter may be good medicine, but listen, comedy is not meant to fill the void in our hearts. Some of the most funny people of our lifetime, you can probably remember some of them committing suicide because they were the most severely depressed. Uh, Chris Farley, maybe you guys remember him, uh, died of uh, drug overdose says this, he says, when the roar of laughter dies down, the silence is deafening. 
meaning comedy as a, a suppressant to life's sorrows and depressants don't actually fix, they just compound the problem. Laughter wasn't the fix for Solomon, so he turns to alcohol. In verse three, he says, I, had, I tried to cheer my heart with wine. You see, a lot of us, like Solomon, turn to alcohol in our lives to cultivate more joy in our lives. What we find is that that which we thought would cultivate our joy actually robs us from it. Because Solomon understands that for those who seek pleasure, they don't typically keep pleasure. For those who seek pleasure, they don't typically keep pleasure. It just leaves us more empty than before. So seeing that intellectualism and hedonism could not satisfy the craving for meaning, Solomon turns to our third empty and meaningless pursuit, which is materialism. Materialism. Now, if you don't fall in either of the first two, I think a lot of us will fall in this third one, materialism, which could be both work and our stuff. Here's what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 2, 4 through 11. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who were before me in Jerusalem. I also uh, gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delights of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom, wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Also, my, uh, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Ready for Solomon's reward? Here it is. I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon understood something that no matter how hard we work and no matter what stuff we come to get by it, it doesn't satisfy the void for meaning. Now, this is very timely for our lives today because you and I buy into a lie, a very popular lie, and it's called the American dream. And companies and people are spending billions of dollars so that you will buy into the American dream. What do we say from the beginning? And maybe some of you parents, you're guilty of this in here. Your parents taught you it. Well, what do you need to do? You need to stay in school and then you need to get good grades and then you need to get into the right college. You need to pick your career and get through school and then you need to get a good job. And then what happens after you get a good job? Well, then you need to get that house you've always wanted, with the white picket fence and the nice neighbors. And then what do you do? Then you get that car, maybe that two car, maybe three cars if you got a little bit extra income and you spend on those three cars and then, you know, it might be time to settle down and have some children. So let's have some children. And then what do you do? You, you work your life and you do good in your careers and you look forward to long weekends or extended vacations. And then you retire early when you're 60 and you go golf and you see the grandkids. And in the last season of our life, before we go see God in judgment, all we do is work on our golf swing and go see our grandkids and then we go to glory. And what do you think happens on that day? You think we stand in front of God and, God, and we're gonna go, God, I need you to see my golf swing. God, I got a really good golf swing. I hit under par the last few times I played. Oh, whoa, whoa, God, check out my grandkids. Look at my grandkids, God. 
Can I share with you what a tragedy is? A tragedy is a life lived for self, cloaked in Jesus, and we call that the gospel. That is a life wasted. And I don't know about you, but I don't wanna be guilty of living the entirety of my life doing the same thing everyone else does and leaving my stamp on the world. You know what Solomon says? The world's not gonna remember your stamp, dog. It's gonna be washed away in the pleasures of something else. No one will remember you 100 years after you die and everything you worked so hard to get and care about will be gone. And you know what? You won't be here to enjoy it. That's the, that's the reality of the American dream. And so many of us believe that if we can just get those things, like we can live that lifestyle and have that stuff, that that stuff will make our lives easier. But is it really any easier? Are you happier in life because of the things that you own? Like, think about it. We have touch screen refrigerators. Who needs a touch screen in the refrigerator? It's a big box that keeps things cold. Have you ever thought about that? I'm gonna go to Lowe's and spend $3,000 on a touchscreen refrigerator, right? Some of us need that. Or how about our cloud accessible calendars that keep everything we do trapped on our devices and all of our time is controlled by these things. Or we keep seeming to get nicer smartphones. Hey, Apple, come out with a new iPhone every single year and we just die to have it. But is life actually easier? Or are we more tied to our stuff than ever before? You see, while innovation and technology are moving forward, humankind seems to be in a state of regression. The more we have, the more we want. It doesn't make our lives easier, it just ties us more to the modern complexities that wage war against our hearts when someone threatens to take them away. You should have seen some of my students when I, when I said, yeah, we may not have cell phones for the week of camp, four days. Should have seen some of their faces. My cell phone? Four days? What about my snap streaks? What's my mom gonna think if I don't text her back within 10 minutes? What about my boyfriend? What about my girlfriend? Solomon says, if we make our entire lives about storing up our treasures, Jesus says that which you bind on earth will be loosed on earth. You won't take it to heaven with you. So where is the treasure in our hearts? Solomon answers in verse 11, then I considered all my toil and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. Listen to me, as hard as we work to keep that which we have, someone else is gonna come along after us and is gonna decimate it, use it, or abuse it. As I was reading and studying, I thought about my job here. When I first came to charity back in 2019, I saw so, I just thought, man, I cannot wait to be a pastor. When I become a pastor, then my life will be fulfilled could not wait to become a pastor. And I used to, and if you know me closely, I'll, I'll share with you honestly that I find a lot of unhealthy identity in what I do here at this church. Not that being a pastor is bad, but being a pastor and what it does to Grant's heart sometimes is bad until I recognize the lie. Listen, I am not necessary for God to do what God does. None of the pastors here are necessary for God to do what God does. And here's the other truth. Someone, no matter how hard I work to institute and change and make high school ministry here the best it possibly can, check this out. All the, all the times I had conversations with Marty and Saul and begged for more budget to do this, begged for more time to do this, begged for more margin to do this. Someone's gonna come along after me and is going to change everything that I tried so hard to institute. And so none of it matters. And this is what Solomon's highlighting, right? That, that 
that this doesn't matter. So instead of putting so much, for me, so instead of putting so much stock in what I do, listen, I just wanna be faithful. I just wanna be faithful. I can lay my head to sleep at night in peace knowing that I was faithful with what God gave me in the season he gave it to me. And when we see ourselves sometimes in this light, it helps us live life with more joy because we don't find so much identity in what we do. Some of you, when you look in the mirror, you see yourself by your position, your authority, or your title. And Solomon says it's dead, it's vanity. It's a striving after the wind. Solomon concludes that meaning can't be discovered in intellectualism. It can't be experienced in hedonism. And it isn't manifested in materialism. Which, which begs the question, so why are we here? Where is meaning found if not in all these things? What is the meaning of life? Well, Solomon answers his own question in chapter 12. Are you ready to find out what the meaning of life is? Here's what Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 12, 11 to 13. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. So what's the whole duty of man? To fear God. Now, just so you know, if you're new to the church world, new to the Bible, fearing God is not this terror or this being afraid of, of God. No, fearing God means that God is the greatest treasure of our life. He is the prize of our eyes. He is the groaning and the yearning of our heart. He is on the tip-top pedestal of the totem pole of our priorities. God is who we worship, not just in our words, but in our life. That's what it means to fear God and to keep his commandments, which does what? trains us in godliness and keeps us in a position where we keep God at the top of our list. That's what Solomon says the whole duty of man is. So in other words, this is my bottom line for this morning. If you remember nothing else, this is why all this matters for you. Serious godliness is the only way to supreme happiness. I mean, that's the good news this morning. Serious godliness is the only way to supreme happiness. How do you get supreme happiness? By serious godliness. That is the key. And Solomon gives us an illustration in verse 11 to explain this. He says that, um, he says, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Now, listen, I don't expect you to know what goads, you should know what nails are, but I don't expect you to know what a goad is. A goad is, um, an ancient cattle prod that shepherds would use back in the time of Solomon. And um, a goad was used to get cattle in line where they needed to be. It looked like this. A goad was used to assist in getting cattle into their right priority and place. And nails that are well-driven are obviously meant to keep something in its right place. Listen to me, fearing God is the goad that aligns our priorities. Fearing God is the goad that aligns our priorities and keeping his commands are the nails that keep us aligned. 
Oh my goodness, if you could just see the richness and the beauty of scripture this morning. Solomon answers the question just as richly as he asks it. When God, listen to me, when God is the greatest treasure of our hearts, our hands and our feet respond accordingly. This is true of the people of God. So how do we continually align? If you're going, well, I'm a Christian, Grant. I know Jesus, so teach me how to align my priorities with God. Here's how we do it. First of all, we have to know his commandments. We have to know his commandments. Listen, some of us are being berated daily by the enemy because we do not know the truth of God's word. Do you know that God's word is the sword of the spirit? It's an offensive weapon used to cut down the enemy's lies. Some of us are so Bible devoid and Bible malnourished that we don't know what to do when the enemy comes knocking. And so we give in to temptation and we get beat up by him over and over and over again. And aren't you just tired of that cycle in your life? Wouldn't you like it if you could have freedom? Well, you can, and it comes by knowing his commandments. Here's the second thing we gotta do. We gotta keep them. We gotta keep his commandments. It's not enough just to know them. We have to actually obey them, right? Jesus in the New Testament in John 14 says, the one who loves me is the one who obeys my commands. If you want freedom, it's not just knowing, but it's obeying. And in knowing and obeying, here's what we find. We find joy in his commandments. We see that God didn't write the Bible to constrict and confine and bind us, but he gives us his word to free us, to show us what a life lived for him could truly look like. So in conclusion this morning, life is not meaningless. It's full of meaning, but only in God. It's full of meaning, only in God. Solomon has helped us to see that we don't find meaning under the sun, but rather beyond it. I wanna finish with a quote from C.S. Lewis. Here's what it says. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. We find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And if you relate with that quote, if you're like so many that have sought out all the empty wells of the world and have been found wanting, listen to me, you aren't alone this morning. In the New Testament in John four, a woman was seeking water from a well, a well called Jacob's well. And it was a well that she knew well. She came there every day and draw water from it because she constantly came back thirsty. Until one day where she meets a man at this well. She didn't know this man, but this man knew her. And this man was Jesus. And Jesus says this to her in John four. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give in them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will come in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And the woman says what I believe we should say in our hearts this morning, sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty or have to come back here to draw water. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Stop searching the waters of the world for a satisfaction that can only be found in the person of Jesus. And if you do this, won't waste your life. You won't waste your life. 
Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. And so you're still drawing from all these empty cisterns, these broken wells, thinking that one day they will fully satisfy you and they just won't. Listen to me, I'm talking to you right now. If you don't know Jesus, today is the day where you could receive him. And maybe for the first time experience what living water tastes like. Taste and see that the Lord is good. This isn't hocus pocus, this isn't mumbo jumbo, this is, this is the call of our hearts and the treasure of our lives that we might know Christ and know him crucified. So maybe you don't know Jesus, today would be the day where you come and, and, and meet him. Um, our pastors will be down here in the front. We would love to talk to you. And after the service, we'll be in the VIP room if you'd like to talk to us there, but stop searching the waters of the world for a satisfaction that can only be found in the person of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, God, for your word. Lord, we pray in all of our lives, God, that we wouldn't be guilty, God, of going back to the same empty pleasures day in and day out, day in and day out, only to find the same result. God, help us to not waste our lives. God, help us to not live our entire lives doing the American dream and doing the same thing everybody else does and trying to just blend in and, 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 and seek complacency and not draw attention to ourselves. God, help us to live a, a life that wants to disrupt some things. God, help us to live a life that's actually worthy of doing something big for the gospel. God, help us to not pray for things like safety. God, forgive me for all the times in my prayers I've asked for safety. God, keep us safe until the next day. Keep us safe until next Sunday. No, God, don't keep us safe. Make us dangerous. God, open our hearts and open our eyes to the, to the world around us that doesn't know Christ. And may we be ambassadors, heralds of the good news of Jesus that others might come to know you and that we would make something of our lives, that we would magnify you in all we do. God, break our hearts this morning for what breaks yours. Christ, would we see you one day in heaven? And God, instead of declaring to you our golf swing or pictures of our grandchildren, God, might we say we did something with our lives for the glory of the gospel. Help us in this, Father, because you have to remove the blinds and you have to remove our hearing aids, God, and you have to give us the ability to see and to hear as you see and hear. Father, thank you that you hid these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to children. God, maybe be like children and have the joy and the gumption and the desire to make something of you in our lives. We pray all this, Jesus, in your mighty name. And everybody in the room said, amen.